The Shortcode Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcode Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to The Short Coat, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On today's show, Trusting the System. Med students sometimes find it difficult to trust their school to get them through this ordeal of learning medicine. Sometimes you're taught things that seem less than useful. Sometimes your professors uh, or administrators don't seem to understand what's at stake for you. Sometimes the rules and procedures and regulations and all this crap are puzzling at best, opaque at worst. So when should you trust the system and when should you push back? Uh, To help me on this topic, I've got some brilliant people with me today, including... A gaggle of M1s like Rick Gardner. Hello, hello. AJ Chowdhury. What's up, guys? Eric Bozart. Brilliant might be a strong word. Hey! <laughs> For myself. Don't shortchange yourself. <laughs> and M4, Holly Conger. Is hey one. there. Stay tuned also for a visit with Yahoo Answers to practice your patient interaction skills. But first, today's episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a division of Sonabank, member FDIC, Panacea is banking for medical students built by doctors. I'm excited to welcome them back, so I'll tell you more about them later on in the show. Before we get started with our main topic, friends, I'm going to be honest with you right now. My mental health is kind of in the toilet. It's not. <laughs> the pandemic is wearing on me. The hope that I've felt in recent weeks because of vaccines has sort of rebounded back to a sort of base level of blah. It's February. It's been brutally cold. No sunlight. Netflix isn't doing it for me. YouTube isn't doing it for me. And to be honest... Sometimes work isn't doing it for me, except on Fridays, podcast day. Best day. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge, listeners, that if you're feeling something right now, something similar, uh, you're not alone. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll has shown that people 18 to 24 are having an especially difficult time compared to others, and four in 10 adults report symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorders, an increase of four times over pre-pandemic levels. Communities of color are also having even more difficulties. Almost half of black adults and Hispanic or Latino adults report symptoms more than white adults. I have a general sense that students are having a tougher time academically right now. I don't have any numbers associated with that, but I just want to take a minute to acknowledge for everybody that all this sucks. If you're having trouble, please reach out to your counseling center, your doctor, your parents, your friends, admit to your troubles, be there for others in your life and keep doing what needs doing to get through all this. And hey, If you're looking for a little community when you're stuck at home having no fun, join us on the live stream of these recordings so you can have some fun with us on Facebook in the Shortcode Podcast Student Lounge. Maybe it'll help. I mean, I'm not completely confident of that. It might help. I saw something that said that people are consuming just entertainment at like an unprecedented rate, blowing through Netflix shows, blowing through entire podcasts, just unprecedented audiobooks, libraries are way upticked, you know, so I think everybody's at home. So hopefully they're paying attention. Uh, Hopefully we can provide entertainment. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, like I, I got to the, I mean, I've gotten to the point where, like I said, Netflix is new for me, YouTube isn't like, I just don't want to watch anything anymore. Maybe that's yeah. just me. I'm still doing a lot of reading. So that's nice. But I rewatching Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I've, I've never watched Game of Thrones. So maybe I should, maybe I should do that. I never did either. I watched the first season and then I couldn't do it because it just, I would watch an episode and feel terrible because <laughs> all the terrible people win for so long. And I was like, this is not Okay. You know what? Like, I'm not going to watch Game happy. of Thrones. I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I can counter that with like a slightly more 
uplifting show called Ozarks where some good people yes. and some bad <laughs> people win. Show. That is what I binged during the pandemic. Yo, so it's good. so good. That's the one with Jason Bateman, is that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yep. the Mexican cartel. And there's some dying, some money laundering. Sure. Yeah. Jason Bateman does so well in Ozarks that now whenever I see him in anything else, I can't see him as Marty Bird. I just like, okay. <laughs> That's all there is. <laughs> and at Rick, you admitted to, to binge watching ER. Oh, it's so good. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm in love with George Clooney. I can see where the appeal came from. He is a handsome, handsome man. He is. And a wow, good, those and cheeks. A, and, a fine, and, a fine, <laughs> and a fine actor. Didn't uh, he make an appearance on Friends, the TV show, as a doctor? Yeah. He did. Yeah, with like, with someone else famous, but I forget who. He's everywhere. So today's show is about trust. It's something that I don't think comes easy to medical students for some reason. A lot of things in medical school have a perceived arbitrariness that makes it difficult to trust. Uh, among the things I'd like to get at today is when to trust the system and when to push back. Friends, let's hear some examples from your lives. When have you experienced this lack of trust? Who's on this passport? No. <laughs> <laughs> remember when you said no hot takes yeah i mean i as the only non-m1 here probably have a different perspective on all of this as my bird's eye view looking back at it all so i'm curious to see what you guys think yeah so what if we did this okay so m1s you're halfway you're a little more than halfway through your m1 year so we, you haven't experienced probably the depth and breadth of bullshit that you will but you have some it's sticky yeah what are some other things that you've been able to go? Okay, Aze, you mentioned the wellness passport. Let's just get into it. Tell What is the wellness passport? So the wellness passport is every semester we have to write a couple of essays reflecting on things that make us happy, that make us well. But the thing is, we have to find time to do those things first. So odds are you're going to end up writing about the yoga that you pretended to do for an hour. <laughs> Yeah, this semester it includes finding like I think it's the parallel project where we have to find ways to enhance ourselves. And I can appreciate learning how to become a new learner again. But like the suggestion was learn a new language, learn a new skill. And I'm like, hmm, that's pretty neat. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I actually like this this semester's versions of wellness passports. One is what Rick just mentioned, the parallel project where you're, you're being a new learner and picking up a hobby, and that's pretty fun. I actually started making music with Alex as my new skill to learn. And the other one's an advocacy project where you actually go out and do service, and that's actually something I've been looking forward to. And the thing is, you get to pick and choose what you want to do with these, and that, that to me is a lot better than having to carve out an hour of your day to do something that you may or may not have time to do. It's still time, though. It still takes time. That's true. The way I see it is now, at least, you're being incentivized to do things that you're probably going to do anyways. If you do the advocacy project and you do service, well, to do well in the match, you're probably going to want to have service on your application anyways. And then to, and Holly, correct me if I'm wrong, to not sound just like a boring one-dimensional med student in interviews, you want to have a hobby to talk about as well. Oh, definitely. What are those? <laughs> I think the hobby section is the most 
talked about section of an application. It's so, pretty it's pretty high yield. <laughs> I was like, so having something that sounds interesting on there and something that you can actually talk about, not something you threw on there because you think it sounds cool but don't actually know much about is good. But also, yes, having volunteering and service or teaching or other things you're passionate about is important for the rest of the application too. But listening to you guys talk, it sounds like the wellness passport has improved significantly. <laughs> so if that makes you feel better, they are cha- making changes. I think that the double-edged sword here is as soon as... Is, as soon as you make something required, it's like no longer fun and like kind of loses a little bit of what its intended purpose is for. But I think they're trying to teach you to be well-rounded, to have coping skills for when life gets tough and to like kind of cement those things in early because it will benefit you down the road. But making it required makes it more like a task, you know, which is kind of not the point. Right. And that's, I think, getting the message of why these things are required, getting the message clear and at a level that's very relatable is really important too. And I guess that's something that uh, a lot of med students miss out on is, yes, this may seem like arbitrary BS, but at the end of the day, there's some kind of aspect to it. Like it is an LCME requirement to have some component of wellness in your curriculum for med school, which is why we have to do it to begin with. So if that's communicated more transparently, I think people would be more okay with that. Do you suppose at some point along the line, Someone higher up in administration, not necessarily at CECOM, but at LCME or somewhere. It's just like the only way that we can connect with our students like this is to make it an assignment. <laughs> They're like, that's the only thing that they can focus on. There's That's not completely false, I would assume. You know, because if you just made it, you know, voluntary. Right. Like if you just had a seminar that was like, hey, be well, don't forget to be well. <laughs> It's pretty easy to just be like, eh, I'm going to brush it off. But here's the great I mean, here's the great secret about the wellness passport that, that most people don't seem to get. You could literally put anything on the wellness passport. Like if you do something else outside of medical school, like say are on a podcast occasionally, or if you go for a bike ride once in a while, if you lift, bro. Um, AJ, do you do you even lift? I might ortho jacket on. <laughs> well, they have like a bench press competition. It's like part of their interview. So you better be able to like hang with <laughs> ortho 500. Let's go. Yeah. Your, your step score has to be uh, higher than your bench and your bench yeah. has to hit that, you know, minimum threshold. I think it should be the other way where your bench has to be higher than your step score. And if you're going to get an ortho step score, it's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say like I think secretly a lot of the stuff that feels like bullshit when you're in med school there is that secret reason for it behind it that sometimes is easy to see it sometimes is not and the wellness passport is definitely one of those things that I'm not pretending is the best way to do it but they are trying to help you develop the skills and things to be successful later on and it's you know it sounds like they're doing a great job incorporating like allowing you guys to be adult learners which means being more self-directed which means choosing things you want to learn and want to do that you're motivated to do and like all of that will be more beneficial than like forcing you to do yoga if you hate yoga (laughs) i just want to mention a kind of in tune with what aj said about like the lcme and requiring wellness i feel the same way so far about our interprofessionalism education like hey let's just talk with some people and do this assignment don't forget the self-reflection and then we're done i understand there's a need but i felt like it could be or incorporated better as holly mentioned talk a little bit about i mean i don't know how deeply we need to go into what ipe is but i think if i were to describe it here it is again i think an lcme thing and the idea is that you are exposed to other learners in other health uh, science 
colleges here at the university. So pharmacy, PT, nursing, et cetera, dental. Point is that you all get together and do these activities together. And so, for instance, you might discuss a case sort of longitudinally, right? Um, Isn't that what most of them are? Like as someone who's, I think I've gone through most of the IPE stuff. They're all pretty much case-based. You talk through a case as a team. Right. It's your colleagues in pharmacy, nursing, dentistry, you know, all these other groups. Like it it seems like that. And then like Rick said, after all that, you do a self-reflection, like how were you involved as a med student? Like what is your role in the team? Yeah. And I mean, I'll respond and just say, I don't think interprofessionalism and education in it is bad at all. I think it's it's pivotal, but I think first semester, all we did was we took like an online module that took about 25 minutes. We didn't even interact with anyone from any other professions outside of, for me, being an MD student, I interacted with PA students, but nothing beyond that. And I felt like this was just a box that they were trying to kick. Well, I mean, to be fair, Last semester was kind of a, <laughs> and, and, but last semester had some issues with not being able to do in-person learning as much. So it was kind of a, it was kind yeah. of like a, yeah, well, we, we have to do this. I don't know if this is going to go well, but let's do it anyway. And we certainly don't want our med school to lose its accreditation. That is not good for us. So obeying the LCME rules is something that the school has to do, which is fine. Because again, that great idea of understanding how pharmacists and physical therapists and PAs and things integrate into the healthcare picture with you, like understanding your roles and how you can use them and they can use you and what they can bring to the table. Like understanding all of that is a great idea. (laughs) It's just the execution is sometimes not ideal. IPE for me, you know, mine was in person because it was a couple of years ago now. And I thought the most useful part that we did was honestly, we just like chatted at like a a lunch or a dinner. And it's like, it was helpful to learn like the training and the school and the path for the other healthcare workers, because that helped me just understand their, their knowledge base and how, how they make these choices to get integrated into which healthcare setting. But sometimes forcing a case, which is clearly a medical case, and trying to involve this poor speech pathologist who has nothing to do with this case at hand is a little tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, We had something like that the last time where we dealt with a patient who was had a mental health crisis. We had a dental student there. And it's like... Yeah. Where's the intervention? And I, I mean, again, I can appreciate the holisticness of it and I mean, being able to communicate, but it's a more uh, unique situation. You tend to feel bad for the dental students because they kind of get thrown into that, like out of the blue, it seems like. What's always silly when it's like mental health crisis, some serious pharmacy stuff and some serious social work stuff and some serious medical stuff. And they have a cavity. And it's like, well, okay, I don't know if that's (laughs) quite the time to handle it. Or like we had one that was dealing with palliative care, you know, end of life care. And the poor dental student went... Okay, you know, what are you going to do? They're in palliative care. Are we going to do dental work on this person? Like, I don't think so. (laughs) I feel like that's the first thing to go. Maybe that's part of the lesson, is knowing when certain people are not needed. That's, like, kind of deep in a way. Now we're getting into curriculum. Now we're getting into it. What if that was the purpose all along? Oh, crap. It's coming full circle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Trust the system. Da-da-da. Holly, what have there been situations in clerkships where you've had difficulties trusting? Oh, certainly. I think looking back in all of med school, there was lots of stuff that I thought was not a great use of time or am I really learning from this? A lot of times. like Because we should say you you have decided at this point to be... Oh, an emergency medicine physician. So a little bit of everything. Yeah. (laughs) Which in part helps. (laughs) 
Well, I just remember like when I, especially like as a preclinical student, as an M1 and 2, I remember like really wondering if stumbling through CBL cases that I barely knew anything and stumbling through PCS sessions were actually teaching me how to talk to a patient. And at the time I was kind of, I don't know, very doubtful. Looking back on it, that's like the first time when you start to learn, you know, like how to write a note, how to work up a patient, even when you don't know what's going on. And it's also a big vocabulary lesson, starting to see the concepts you're learning about actually integrated into a clinical setting. And like, I think I learned a lot more than I thought I was at the time, if that makes you guys feel better. It's just, it's hard to see sometimes in the moment until you go back, you know, like as a fourth year student, I've been been on some teaching rotations recently, which is actually super neat because I get to go back and like facilitate CBL. And I'm actually in the process of teaching gross anatomy lab to the dental students. And so going back and like watching you guys in CBL, not know what inflammatory arthritis is or any of that work of stuff. It's just, it's kind of cool because I know so much now and this process like formed and shaped me. And if it can make me know all this stuff, then I am starting to see like how it's working and I can see the pieces fitting together better now looking back at it than you guys can in it, which is pretty cool. And even with like anatomy, it's so much easier the second or third time around because I also did IMEI. So I've been in the lab a few times, but teaching it is just so neat to be able to see my own skill and the things that I've gained that I didn't realize was happening as I gained it. So now that you're actually approaching the end, you're like, oh, some of those yeah. things, <laughs> I look of those back things and I'm make like, more oh, sense. There, I did get something out of that. And I think that's part of it. I hear that all the time when we do the course reviews. Basically, we look at the courses, we get uh, reports from a committee of students and from the course directors on how the course went. And some of the feedback is, well, we understand that you don't love that, but you're going to need it next semester and it will become clear at that time that's what i wanted to say i remember for caps we didn't go over the neurological exam until this semester but i was a complete idiot with cranial nerves all of last semester i was like why didn't you move it forward and then it's like oh that's why we didn't move it forward (laughs) it's starting (laughs) to make sense now yeah and the other thing that i sometimes hear is why don't we do it in this particular order and it turns out that the whole reason you can't do it is because it messes with the entire schedule of the entire curriculum (laughs) and something else will be therefore put out of order and sometimes it just comes down to physical space problems like we can't do it because there's no room to put you in to do it or weird things like that so the lesson there is you know life is not optimal resources are always constrained and so sometimes things just aren't are are just imperfect it's just because on the flip side of that i think that the further along i got in the process the more i don't know if all people who design curriculums are just brilliant or if Iowa just does a particularly good job at it. But there's a lot of repetition built into the curriculum, which is super helpful because you come back to things over and over again, even if you don't quite understand when you will come back to them. And you don't know that at the time, the first time you see something. But like with neuro as an example, because I know you guys just finished neuro. I, full disclosure, I hated neuro (laughs) going through it the first time and I got through it and it was great. But then, you know, like you hit it again kind of in CBL and then it pops up a little bit in other MOHDs. It'll be like part of a unit again and you'll like hit all the clinically relevant things more and they like build in this like stepwise review and then you have your neurology clerkship, which is where it really gets cemented. And that repetition I thought was very well designed. And I don't know if it was on purpose or a happy accident. I can tell you that it's absolutely on purpose. It's an acknowledgement that you need that repetition, which brings me to another idea, which is that trusting the system is not all about just trusting the college to do the right thing by you, but it's also about trusting the curriculum, trusting the college 
that we know how to educate. And when I say when I say we, I definitely don't mean me. They know how to educate when you're like completely flummoxed. You'll come back to it and that you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. Do the best you can. And at some point you'll get it again and it'll all come together at some point. Dave, in one of the previous episodes of the podcast, you had talked about the kind of mental either fogs or blinders that we get as med students. And as someone who's kind of stepped out a little bit in terms of the curriculum, I think that's one of the biggest things that I've seen is that along with trusting the process, you don't realize what material that you are being presented is important until you kind of step away from it. You're so far into the grindstone that you don't see how this information could be helpful to somebody until but you step away from it and you get some more exposure into either getting out into a clinic and seeing how patients are presenting or trying to apply certain principles because you're so far into the didactic moment, that way of thinking almost of like, okay, I need to learn this. I need to study it. And you start thinking about it like, oh, if a patient actually presented with something related to this information, would I be able to pick up on it? And would I be able to use that? Yeah. I always think of, I don't know if you guys still cover this in the curriculum, but the Krebs cycle, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. My theory about this is a super basic process of life that nobody's going to come in and you'll be like, "Mm, your Krebs cycle's (laughs) up. So I have another M4 story that illustrates this very well. So I was definitely one of those people that learned and forgot the Krebs cycle like eight times or however many times we do it in undergrad and med school and was like, why do we need to know this? Great. It's good to understand how cells work, but it's too microscopic for what medicine really is. And then I took a toxicology rotation because I'm going into EM and I we like the first day, this toxicologist who I actually love, he's one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with. But he looked at me and was like, how much money have you paid to learn the Krebs cycle? (laughs) And I didn't want to answer that because it was undergrad and med school. Seems like a loaded question. Yeah. And and then he went on to me. He was like, you know, it's almost as if it's kind of important to know the cycle that keeps us all alive every second of every day. (laughs) And then he went on and he was like, if your patient overdoses on a medication that blocks one of these steps... Don't you think it's kind of important to know where it's going awry so you can know what could work around it or how to skip the step or how to undo it? In toxicology, they do that all the time. We talked about the Krebs cycle every day in an actual clinical context, and I had never experienced that until that rotation, which was one of my advanced rotations. I took it in November of my M4 year. And so I was, it was finally like, wow, <laughs> it does matter in some contexts. There's a lot of contexts where it doesn't matter, but believe it's, it or not, there it is. It's almost like they know what they're doing when they I have another context where it matters. So one of my friends, he's an M3 at a different school. He, he knows the Krebs cycle in and out. You know, he committed it to Anki. He has had it memorized for years and All years. All hail. <laughs> <laughs> Got I feel like my disclosure is I don't use Anki, and I feel like I might be in the minority here, but keep going. <laughs> That's true. Half of us in this People like us do. that exist that don't like flashcards. <laughs> so my friend, on rotation, he got pimped by an internal medicine attending on this. The attending waved around a $20 bill and said, anyone who can write out the Krebs cycle from memory on this board gets this. He walked away $20 richer. Oh. Can't see a better reason to remember hey. 
that seems very niche i'm just gonna put that out there right now (laughs) yeah as someone who's been on a lot of rotations i've never had an attending do that except maybe that toxicologist attending who was was not going to give me money for it but was like how much money have you paid i think there's like a a fair like balance between that you know the necessity to learn it but also like the practicality of it you know dr rubenstein teaches all of our you know biochem and such here and i had the opportunity to talk with him about it and he says it really needs to be taught the applicableness of it like you were saying holly where Mm -hmm. things matter that should be taught but the extensive and excruciating detail to which it is taught isn't really as applicable you know yeah. Understanding the importance of it and, and the implications that it plays is good to know, but make it practical for us as clinicians to utilize it. Oh, I'm a medical education nerd. And so I've been reading a lot about like adult learners and like strategies to like get them to actually learn. And like one of the biggest keys to it is making it relevant to the learner. And so I really wish that that toxicologist would come back and teach the Krebs cycle because he was able to link it exactly to you have a patient who took this and now you really need to know those nitty gritty details. And as soon as he put it in that context, I like learned the Krebs cycle and retained it because all of a sudden it mattered to me. It mattered to save somebody to know what to do in my future job, you know? And so like all of that was like super helpful (laughs) and I was motivated to learn. I wanted to learn, which was the missing piece before. Let's take a quick break because I need to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, our friends at Panacea Financial. Panacea Financial was founded by two young doctors who were frustrated by other banks, high interest rates, co-signer requirements, restrictive loan terms, flat-out rejections, and inconvenient access to customer service. So they built banking specifically for doctors and doctors in training. Panacea offers PRN, personal loans for medical students, with fast decisions and funding in as little as 24 hours, no co-signers required, and with rates less than half of a credit card. They also offer totally free checking account with all ATM fees reimbursed, across the country so that you can take them with you from medical school into residency and beyond. Best of all, every customer at Panacea gets their own private banker. Their private bankers are supported by a live concierge service desk 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because they work doctor's hours, not banker's hours. Their nonprofit arm, the Panacea Financial Foundation, invests in doctors in training and are working to improve the leaky pipeline for underrepresented ethnic and racial minorities in the medical profession with scholarship and grant programs. So, listeners, please go visit panaceafinancial.com to find out how Panacea Financial truly serves the needs of physicians in training. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonabank member FDIC. Thank you so much for your support, Panacea Financial. That's cool. So we, we've talked about times when trust is hard to come by, and we've talked about times when that lack of trust turns out to be somewhat unfounded because later you find out that, oh, yeah, it now makes sense what happens. But are there times when you should push back and not trust? Holly, have you ever encountered or thought about this? Oh, definitely. And I think some of the ones where I thought I should push back ended up being those ones where upon reflection further in the process, I should not have, (laughs) you know, know, where I was like, oh, okay, I'm trying to teach me how to have good coping mechanisms. So it's probably a good message. It just may have not always come across. I think that you guys are probably not quite here yet if you're M1s, but at some point you get your core rotation schedule. And I remember being convinced that there was a best 
scheduled and that there was a best order to have your rotations in. And I was luckily, I got my desired schedule. So I kind of got one that basically fit this model for me. But I had a lot of friends who didn't and they were very resistant to ever shifting anything despite people's concerns. Some people didn't want to start on the rotation that they thought they were going to go into that field because they're like, I want to maybe be a little bit more prepared and look more impressive on this. And nobody wants to be on surgery near the end because it's right near step one. And so that's a tough rotation with long hours. And so it's kind of a disadvantage or starting on surgery can be tough because you know nothing and it's a challenging rotations. It's one of the hardest shelves. And maybe this is not a good example of pushing back because they're not going to change your core rotation schedule. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned that there's definitely pros and cons to us every schedule, but your skills stack no matter what. And so at the end, you really get to see how much you've grown. That was one of the times when I was like, wow, I've like really become closer to a doctor than a pre-med <laughs> at this point. So that's supposed to be encouraging, I guess, that believe it or not, Carver College of Medicine is going to produce competent people who match into incredible residencies every year and trust this process because it's going to get you there. <laughs> there are times, though, when decisions are made maybe by somebody higher up the food chain than somebody like me, and the, the reasoning for it is opaque at best. And it seems to contribute to some sort of disadvantage or what's the word I'm looking for? It, it seems to indicate a lack of, of interest in the student situation. Well, can we talk a little bit about because I think you guys talked a little bit on a previous episode about the recent update with Step 2 CS. Would that be an instance where students have kind of pushed back against the system and talked about the ineffectiveness, I guess, of that as an institutional tool? That's great that you brought that up, actually, because this past week, our osteopathic colleagues have actually fought back against the process and Complex Level 2 PE is now indefinitely suspended. Oh, really? Yeah, that's like just new. And that was based on people being real upset about the differences in how we're training and evaluating colleagues. For those of us who are less informed about the DO process, that's the equivalent to step two CS for DOs, correct? Yes. And I believe, in fact, it's actually been around longer than step two CS has been. I think both of those are known to have students always pushing back against it and practicing physicians, like people who are all the way through it. And it just took a long time for that feedback to finally be taken. (laughs) I want to say like 17 years. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a long time. So yeah, I would definitely agree that that is a time when students should have pushed back and did. And eventually it made a difference, but it took a longest time. I think one of the hard parts about pushing back is that you have to be you, you have to be respectful about it. I think it's time to maybe it's time to acknowledge that step two CS and the complex thing, maybe they weren't the best use of time and money. I don't want to speak for anybody at the College of Medicine above me, certainly, but maybe maybe it wasn't the best use of time. And it's good that we admitted that. The hard part is being respectful, even though there is this problem and you can't just walk up to the USMLE and go, what are you thinking? I think that to kind of relate that to the, the overall political climate, too, I think like the, the only way to get a change like that is to become involved in issues like that. Right. I, I got an email from one of those. I think it's like the Iowa Medical Society or something that they were talking about an advocacy meeting for students, virtual kind of like a webinar with I think it's the AMCA or the you know, one of the yeah the AMC. AMA. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. The BBY asked the, the QRST. One of those acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about that from a student's perspective of we talk a lot about all these things. And for, I think, those of us like Rick and AJ and I, it, 
Holly, you've already kind of gone through this since you're an M4, but I, I was also thinking about this as well. So we had step two CS recently, but then prior to that, the bigger news was the step one pass fail. That was another thing that was, it was an issue that had been talked about by students and it has created its own kind of waves of good and bad. But the, the only way to kind of get these major changes to the process, right, is to have these student government meetings and these advocates that are students and they're going through the process and you can't expect them to be quick changes, you know. You need a lot of voices to convince a national change, you know, because like everybody has a different opinion. And so you can't switch just because one person thinks that this would be better or whatever. So I think that that's part of the reason they take a long time is because they gather a lot of data. They need a lot of voices and support to decide that this is a clear change. And also medicine traditionally, like we like what we know is proven to work. And so changing from that is sometimes difficult. Yeah. Medicine pushing, is super conservative that way. isn't? Aren't, yeah. Isn't. And pushing back at a national level is a little different than pushing back like at your own institution. I think Iowa is particularly open to feedback and a lot of like their rotations and their classes. That's why they have you fill out all those surveys because they try and incorporate student feedback. They try and look at pushback and make it better. There's certain things where their hands are tied because of like LCME stuff, like with IPE and the wellness passport and things, but they try, which is nice. And I don't know if I have a great example of something that was clearly bad that I pushed back against, because I think Iowa does a good job of adapting as those things come up. I would say, you know, kind of what you were saying, Eric, in regards to like a more systemic thing. I think you were kind of hinting at like Physician's Day at the Hill, which is where, yeah. you know, for this next upcoming week, we as healthcare providers and future healthcare providers can go and talk with our legislature about bills that are on the table and going to be voted upon soon and be advocates for what we believe in and what we believe our patients should be benefiting from. And I think that's taking people across different generations. So us as M1s have like, I feel like our generation in our class is like super outgoing and we have all this passion to do stuff. And then as you start getting churned up by the system, I wouldn't be surprised, Holly, and you can voice in if you feel like a little bit of that is kind of been diminished. And I think that's why residents and, you know, attending physicians aren't as vocal because a lot of that's been taken out of them and just the coursework and how much have they've had to put in to fight back. And I think that's going in tune with like, you need a lot of people over a long course of time to be able to advocate for that change. Yeah, it can definitely be defeating if you like push and push and push and invest so much and then nothing happens, you know, which is why some of those long term battles, you need multiple people to take up the helm and do it. But actually, I was just thinking where I, I'm dumb and I just thought of a big change that happened <laughs> for our school that was about like something that I was a little involved with and very vocal about pushing back against something, which was our clinical curriculum is changing. I mean, I don't know entirely when it's going to happen, but obviously I'm a little biased to someone going into ER, but I was always a believer that ER and ICU rotations should be required to graduate medical school because there is no specialty out there that's not going to overlap with one, if not both of those. And so they are putting ER in the core curriculum, which I think is a necessary change. And a lot of schools have it required anyway. It's um, our sorry year. So there is going to be two weeks of required ER, and then the ICU rotation is going to be required as one of your advanced rotations. And so that was the time, that was a necessary change that I was like, this is not okay. <laughs> Push back. And I definitely had lots of conversations with other medical students who felt the same way, and some that were on the committees that actually got this pushed through. And so that's one of the ones that I think that was necessary pushback, because I was, I was kind of like, it's crazy to me that I'm going to graduate med school and never have done an ICU rotation. And I wanted to, but it wasn't allowed because I had to do ER. That sounds like such a good change because after one of these IPE meetings, it was an emergency response kind of deal where, you know, some traumatic event like a, a shooting or a bomb threat or something like that. And one of our classmates brought up 
how many people in this room fairly full of students actually can perform CPR or know how to use like a tourniquet. You know, these basic techniques that are pretty valuable to an emergency physician or emergency responder. And I think maybe two people raise their hands, things like that. Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously, again, I'm biased because I'm going into ER, but I think it's super useful because you never know when you're going to be the only doctor around, when you're going to be the doctor to deliver the baby on the plane or when something terrible might happen around you and somebody needs emergency medical attention. And it's just also like if you're a family med doctor in clinic and someone needs to be sent to the ER or if you're like, Every specialty overlaps with it. And so I think that was part of the reason that we identified this weakness in our curriculum that some people were graduating with no experience. And so we wanted to go there. And I'm a bit of a black cloud, (laughs) to be perfectly honest, which is actually a great thing to be as a med student because I got to see a lot of really rare things and a lot of really traumatic like injuries and various stuff. So I got to do CPR on several rotations for for better or for worse. But a lot of people don't do that until their ER rotation or until their ICU rotation. But also just like understand like the ER is kind of its own sphere like you do wards rotations you do surgery rotations you do clinic rotations but the ER is kind of its own thing so it's important to understand how it works and so yeah that was definitely a pushback thing that was good (laughs) and you learn a lot of skills that aren't aren't elsewhere in the curriculum and like an ICU like oral presentation is completely different than every other oral presentation that you'll give on any other rotation they like do it completely differently and so I'm really worried about going to residency in ER where I will do several ICU rotations and I will not have practice with that before I graduate, which is part of the reason that I pushed for this because I saw it as a deficiency that was going to hurt my education and I wanted to change that. And I'm not the only student that felt that way, which is, again, back to those multiple voices argument. (laughs) Yeah, there's one more aspect of trust that I want to get to, which is that which is the rules and why they exist. So one of the reasons that bureaucracy exists is because every time an important person like a university president or a dean or a regent or a governor says from on high, we will be doing this. It'll be simple. And don't tell me why it can't be done. Just make it happen. Some poor cowering schmuck like me, or worse, a group of schmucks in a committee in the basement is tasked with making this thing happen. Okay. And If it doesn't happen right, somebody gets in trouble. Maybe me. So we come up with a system that will ensure that we do that job as accurately as possible. Fill out this form. No, you can't do it that way. You have to do it this way. Get this signed and bring it back. And then some medical student comes along and says, WTF, mate, why is this so awful? Why can't we just do it? Why can't I just do it the way I want to do it? They get upset. And, and, And I don't think that's wrong to get upset. This happens all the time. But I think it might be helpful to remember that while it certainly does suck is in, and is annoying, if you ran the world, you'd make different choices, make different assumptions, you'd make different mistakes, but it would only be different potentially and not necessarily better. So to the extent that that is true, and, and I, we can debate that, what's the right way to work on that from outside poor schmuck Dave Etler's little world? I think with most things, being informed is a great start. I had the opportunity of working as a patient care tech at the hospital and where I went to undergrad. And I know a lot of nurses say, you know, I don't care about the opinion of anyone who hasn't worked in healthcare right now. And that's because there's a lot of things that we have to do that just don't make sense. And those are hoops that we had to jump through in just the, the way the system works 
and there's so much bureaucracy to it and being a outsider to it. That's how I kind of understood the question is being able to understand those things and better empathize with what the people in that system are having to undergo is a great start and talking to them and being open and honest, having dialogue, communicating. I think that's a phenomenal way to be better informed and, and support people in those systems. You know, I think the difficulty, though, for a guy like me or, you know, somebody who's supporting the curriculum is that we also don't necessarily know why these decisions are being made. It also means being open to empathizing with the system in a way that it's kind of weird to say to be to empathize with the system. I think a lot about and I'm sure Rick and AJ can probably talk a little bit about this, too, because you, you talk about it in the bioethics portion of TAPS. The institution's doing its best to have some sort of plan for every possible outcome, and the patients need to feel like they're protected from that, right? But you also have to realize that, okay, look at all these forms and all this information, all this hoops I have to jump through to get a certain aspect of my care done. We also have to realize that that's probably stemming from some sort of incident that happened earlier or possible and realize that it's hopefully for your benefit. You have to, I think, again, trusting the system. But No schmuck like me would choose to track every little detail, for instance, of how you guys are getting vaccinated. (laughs) You know, like that's not something that a guy like me would be like, you know what? Beholden to nobody. I have decided that I need to make these rules that make no sense. They make sense. You just don't always know what they are. <laughs> a little empathy sometimes for the for the schmuck, you know, could help things. You are wonderful. Say, Thank it's... you. <laughs> I, I have made no decisions about vaccinations lately. I just want to say. <laughs> the more I get involved in like leadership positions and admin stuff, the more experience I gain, which is how much you don't know when you're not in that position. You know, like the competing priorities, the limitations, the different pressures coming from different directions. And sometimes it's really tough to understand it until you're in it. Yeah. It's so, you know, there's lots of points in med school when I was like, why does it have to be this way? <laughs> yeah. You know, why, why do, do I have to do IPE? Why do I have to fill out a wellness passport? But then like when you kind of gain more experience or if you happen to get a peek behind the curtain at other things, you start to understand why that there is a reason why. <laughs> and you might not know what it is, but there is a reason that it is that way. There is a reason that medicine is a slow moving ship, because if you adapt too rapidly, you might cause more harm than you meant to in ways you didn't anticipate. You yeah. know, so that's why making changes is slow and tested it's very frustrating yeah i was like but that still doesn't make it feel less frustrating no it's very frustrating it's very frustrating to be subject to things that you don't understand and so you definitely have to acknowledge that all right It's time for me to put on my fake medical educator hat and teach you little whippersnappers some lessons about dealing with patients. The best way possible to do that that I can think of is to visit the saddest place on the internet where thought and logic go to die, Yahoo Answers. (laughs) I will say I have been waiting for this moment. Like all those times I've listened to the podcast and been like, I wish I could have said something. Like now having the opportunity to make a fool of myself in these responses, I'm so looking forward to this. All right, all right. Yahoo Answers Anonymous user says, if I'm getting surgery, will everyone in the room except for me have medical degrees? I want to work as a surgeon, but a non-MD surgeon. That's a good question, I think. I think it's nice because it shows a lot of optimism that it's possible to become a surgeon, just like you'd become an electrician or a plumber. Maybe a DO. That's not an MD, but... (laughs) 
That's the only thing I was thinking. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. I just assumed they meant that they didn't want to go to school. <laughs> Yeah, like, can I just do trade school and not medical school or something? Yeah, like if you're becoming an electrician or a plumber, my limited understanding of how that works is you start off knowing nothing and you learn literally by getting your hands dirty and reaching in there and wrenching on pipes and letting the goop fall out until the plumber comes back and says from a smoke break and says, this is no, that's not how you do it. You do it this way and then they fix it. You know, if that was like a surgeon, that would be that would be a little more problematic. I don't think that's a surgeon I would want because unfortunately I think if you don't understand a lot of things beyond the scope of what you're physically looking at, lots of stuff can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. This big pipe connected to the heart's leaking a lot. What's up with that? Just, Why is their blood know. pressure all wonky? Why do they have a fever all of a sudden? Just slap duct tape it. Antifreeze. Just, just slap some flex seal on that. Give it a little sham wow action. <laughs> Wow, no more bleeding. No issues here. Yeah, just move on. I was talking to a surgeon once and he was like, if you ever hear a surgeon say, wow, it looks like we got some aberrant anatomy here. That's them trying to be like, I'm lost. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about that for a second? When you're in like an OR or something like that and you hear a surgeon go, huh, or like, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Or isn't that the most like terrified like as a student you're sitting there like did i just witness malpractice or like a murder i think it very much depends on the context of that huh or that that wasn't supposed to happen because if it's just like they're looking around and they're like i'm having trouble finding this vessel or this ureter and then that's not that scary because they're just going to keep looking around for it it might actually just be aberrant anatomy because people's look you know people's vessels branch in different ways sometimes and stuff like that but if it's more like Oh, dear God, where is all this blood coming from? And that is a scary situation for everyone in the room. Student, surgeon, nurse, you know, it doesn't matter. Or if it's like, oh, my gosh, this is not what we thought. You know, you, there are definitely scary situations. And there are definitely ones where it's just like, eh, going to dig around for a little while until I reorient myself. It's what you train for, those ex- those scary situations, right? You do. But in my experience, when they happen you're still terrified oh, oh sure <laughs> doesn't yeah. doesn't matter how many times it's happened to you i've uh, had the misfortune of being involved in several of those like something is going terribly wrong uh, moments and I, th- I just think that there's no real preparing for that it's still going to be terrifying but having the skills to try and problem solve through it to not let the panic take over is a skill sure <laughs> My self-taught trial-by-fire surgeon isn't going to know what to do. Yeah, I think it might be a little bit tough to problem-solve your way out of that one if you only know They're going to have questions. Yeah, they're going to have questions. (laughs) All right. Anonymous Yahoo user asks, Did you survive the 2020 pandemic? That's all. Did you survive? I mean, I'm a little dead inside, but I mean, (laughs) that's a different story. (laughs) What kind of response are we expecting here? I mean... You're like, no, I didn't. I mean, Eric had a ghost in his room before we started. So, I mean, anything's a possibility at this point. I have unfinished business here on Yahoo Answers. I was going to say, if I was a ghost, I would not be on Yahoo Answers. I I linger in this dark place waiting for people to ask stupid questions. (laughs) Another anonymous question. Many of these are anonymous, surprisingly. Some dirt got in behind my eyeball. Well, what way would be the best to remove my eye, clean the socket, and then pop it back in? Will it hurt? Just some WD-40. You'll be good. (laughs) (laughs) Stick the little, like, that little WD-40 nozzle just in the back and just kind of give it a little... Snake it back in there, yeah. 
there's a you know a, a tried and true method if you just hold open your eyelids and sneeze like as hard as you can your eyes will just pop right out oh, okay. it's a great way to get the dirt behind <laughs> i want to know how they think know like the a, dirt is like behind their eyeball yeah. <laughs> then you like dip it in a mug of water you know that'd be awesome use distilled water that's all right no, clorox is good <laughs> saline the ph is better it won't okay. burn saline you know, your eye is made for receiving light, and I heard UV light is good for cleaning things. So you can shine some UV light in your eyes. It's it's apparently it's made a very prominent press conference. There might be some validity. Uh, we, we'll, we'll have our scientists test it out. Yeah. By the way, the Shorko podcast does not offer medical advice for the lawyers listening. Uh, yeah, none it, of us are actual doctors yet. Yeah. So close. Yeah. Student doctors. Here's here's another one, and and I, when I found this question. I want you to know that I feel this question and the eyeball question because I have thought of these kinds of things before myself. If I swallow a large wad of chewing gum, will it clean out all the nasty junk in my digestive system as it moves through? And the reason why I have a certain amount of sympathy for these questions is because I, too, have had these weird ideas like, like when I have a bad chest cold, I have fantasized about sticking my head into a bucket of saline water and like breathing in and then breathing out to clear out my lungs. You know, this is like the fantasy that I have. Now, I know I, I am sufficiently advanced in my knowledge of the human body. That's not a good idea. I know that. But who's to say it wouldn't work? I think, you know, with the gum, they say it takes, what, seven years to get through. So, I mean, in seven years, you could be cleaned up pretty good. Just eat a really big wad. Yeah. Uh, they they use that sort of thing like to clean your car. You know, they get that they get that that slime that you buy. It's basically, and you smear it on your dashboard, and it picks up all the gunk. Why wouldn't it work inside your intestines? Doesn't it do it for keyboards too? Can't you just yeah yeah like yeah? Like, yeah. <laughs> like all I'm picturing is this giant sticky ball getting wedged in your intestines. <laughs> All right. I just think of like a snowball that you're like, you know, when you're like trying to make a snowman, you just keep rolling and rolling. That's what the gum's going to do is it like makes its way in your intestines. Yeah. That, but it, the problem with that is then you got to get it out. Yeah. It was like, what happened? You've got like, you know, 40 like, feet of intestines or something. Yeah. <laughs> I just think like, enough effort, any problem can be solved. <laughs> I, I kind of want to know what the, what's the consistency of the gum look like? when it needs to be removed like is it still gum like texture like or you had enough that blocked something and like you have to get it out what consistency is that trying to get that out of there i have not wondered this and i wish i now that image had not been put in my head appreciate that i don't know it's got to go through some stomach acid so you feel like that would do something to it this is where I, I think like the huh awkward. comes up of the surgeon they're like you know oh small yeah. ball obstruction classic <laughs> huh wasn't expecting that <laughs> i feel like surgeons definitely collect stuff that they've pulled pulled out of patients that is really neat I've seen i those. hope not i hope they don't keep it <laughs> i think they do i They're, think they might need permission to do it do they, they put they it can. in like a like a little shadow box on the wall you know like uh yeah i think they have like a, it's like their trophies look what i have retrieved <laughs> look what i found just dinner conversation just hey yeah. Look at all my stuff. Thank you for coming over. Let me show you my collection of bowel obstructions. All right, Gabriel wants to know, why does my a-hole itch after I take a shower? If anyone here is a butt doctor, preferably straight, please let me know. Thanks. <laughs> it itches after the shower? A butthole doctor. I'm going into emergency medicine, so I'm not a butthole doctor. One of you guys gets to take this one. Yeah, which one of you is going to get board certified in butthemology? <laughs> 
Proctologist, I think is the, oh, is the that what it is? fancy okay. way to right. say this. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we had there. I can't remember what lecture it was. It was oh, somewhere no. along the MOHD line. You're not going to say this. Is it from our year? I can't remember if it's three or four, but you, you, I finally learned what per, it's, I can never pronounce it, but it's pruritus. 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 Yeah. 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 And then pruritus. I'm pretty sure the, the person teaching the lecture casually throws in like anal pruritus. And you're sitting there like, what's that mean? And then you Google it and you're like, oh, itchy butt. That's, that's your symptom. I, I think, yeah, I, I think the problem is that, you know, you don't want to hear your doctor diagnose you with itchy butt. You want something more fancy to say. Like anal pruritus. Eric, I thought you were going to go to the one micro lecture that scars every M2 with, with the worms. Oh. Have, a, have you heard of the, the tape test? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Holly, explain it for everyone who's not well-versed in their tape test methodologies. Uh, this, well, there is a, a certain intestinal worm who, I think it's the pinworm. Relatively but, <laughs> common? Is this a common? It's relatively common, especially in kids, is okay. the example yep. they always use, like daycare. The kid goes to bed and wakes up in the morning and has, you know, an itchy butthole <laughs> when they wake up. And usually this is because the worm comes out of the rectum and, like, lays its egg on the skin around the rectum, around mm, the butthole, <laughs> yes. and this itches. <laughs> and so the kid has an itchy butt, but the, re- the way they diagnose this is not so fancy in medicine, and they literally just take some scotch tape and, like, touch it to the skin around the kid's butthole and then they look for eggs <laughs> oh i okay oh man i i was picturing something very different which is that you put a piece of tape across the butt and then when the worm sticks its head out it gets stuck like oh. on some fly paper there we go soap bars yahoo user soap bars wants to know do hormones get pooped out of the body or do they just stay inside us forever i actually I mean, technically, I don't know, but I think I've assumed that they just get changed into other things that get excreted eventually. Am I right? I'm pretty sure. I don't, I can't think of anything that like gets directly excreted. Nah. Yeah. No, I don't think any that, of, none, none of them get fecally excreted. <laughs> none of them like go into your GI tract. Lots of hormones are very small molecules that get like digested and recycled and broken down in other ways <laughs> and reincorporated, but yeah. that's the boring I think it's, answer. <laughs> I think it's common knowledge that every 28 days approximately hormones cause menstruation, right? But I think one thing that mo- many people don't know is that on the 29th day, like a wombat, the woman poops out of her body a cube of used up hormones, which she uses to construct a sort of nest for her babies. And it can take up to a year to collect enough cubes for her nest. But, you know, that's what mothers do. It's like a hormone stone. Yeah. Like a kidney stone. <laughs> Did you know that wom- wombats poop cubicle poops? I did know that, but I, I don't remember why. Yeah, it's something to do with how their how their intestines like squish and mash it, and for some reason it comes out cube. One thing that I think is funny is you know uh, a woman or a female's hormone cycle is every twenty eight days, and we always get the bad rap for being like moody and all of that with our stuff. But what people don't know is that men's hormone cycles is every ninety minutes. So who's really <laughs> the moody one? <laughs> Anonymous wants to know, could I replace my brain with something that's not my brain, but still retains information? I mean, I'd like to know the answer to this. Uh, well, like AJ's answer. Oh, yeah. I held up my phone for anyone listening, not on the live stream. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it, it sounds dumb, of course. Like, no, you can't take out your brain and replace it with something that can do. But everything retains information, right? I could scoop out 
my thinky bits and replace it with baby food, bananas, and peas. And there would be some, there would be information there. Retaining that information is tough because of entropy, right? But that's true with brains too. I want some extra thinky bits though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you think that's what they're after? They were, they weren't just replacing it with static information. Oh, they're not stealing right. smarter people's thinky bits. Or better thinky bits. That's really what I need. They've, I, been I trying, want better they've been trying to do like a head transplant, you know, like replace somebody's brain with somebody else's brain. But that it's fine. Okay, we've don't talked think that that about this on the show before. It's not a head transplant. It's a body transplant. Oh, oh. <laughs> like is that a semantics thing? Yeah, well, it is and it isn't. Like if you think of the self as being centered in the brain, right? Oh, like you're. Tra- yeah, okay. You're. So you're transplanting the body around the brain. It, I don't know, like, yes, it's a semantics thing, but I don't know how to explain this, but I'm not transplanting somebody else's brain into my body and remaining myself. It's the other way around. That's true. But either way, I don't think it's worked yet. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's our show. Holly, AJ, Eric, Rick, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Yep. And Pleasure what, as always. And what kind of anal pruritus would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are available. Our editors are AJ Chowdhury and Eric Bozart. Alex Belzer is our marketing coordinator. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.